Thank you, Brian. Great worship tonight. Let me share with you a couple verses since so encouraging tonight about just how great our God is and how faithful He is. Some of my favorite verses from the Psalms. Psalm 46, listen to the psalmist. God is our strong refuge. He is truly our helper in times of trouble. For this reason we do not fear when the earth shakes and the mountains tumble into the depths of the sea, when its waves crash and foam and the mountains shake before the surging sea. I hope God is your refuge tonight. That's where we need to place our faith and security and our hope. First John chapter 3 tonight as we continue our study in the book of First John. John was writing this to set the record straight concerning Christ and concerning those who follow Christ. And uh, last week we looked at First John chapter 2 verses 28 through chapter 3 verse 3. We looked at the coming of the Lord. And how Jesus wants us to be ready for His coming at all times. And so we sort of looked at those verses from that angle. Well, in the context, as we pick it up tonight in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, we're going to continue with that same theme because in a sense John is just continuing to share with us here how you and I can in a sense stay ready spiritually for the coming of the Lord. How we can stay in fellowship, if you will, as the Lord gets ready to come back. So notice in chapter 3, verse 4, here's what John says. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Indeed, sin is lawlessness. I, I think the first thing that God shares with us here is that we need to honestly look at ourselves if you will, and, and take a proper evaluation of us and, and our desires and our will and all of that, because here's what John says. He says, all sin is really lawlessness. And here's just a hint as far as Bible study goes. One letter can mean a big difference in your Bible study and your understanding of it. That's why you'll notice very importantly that in verse 4, the word sin is in the singular. You'll notice in verse 5, a verse we're going to talk about in a minute, that sins is plural. So there's a significance of why the singular versus plural. When you read the Bible and you see singular and plural, that's important. That's not just something to to sort of slide over. And what John is saying by using sin in the singular here and saying it is lawlessness, he says, this is really the essence of sin. This is the core. This is the crux. This is the root of all sin. That sin, in a sense, is lawlessness. He's not saying that it's without law. He's actually saying that down right at the base level of, of all human beings, that when we sin, when we go outside of God's boundaries, when we go beyond what God said, just like Adam and Eve, you know, eat of all the trees in the garden, just don't eat of that. When, when we cross over those boundaries, when we're disobedient, what it really is, is not that we don't know what we should do. It's the fact that we know what we should do and we do it anyway. Because even for people that don't know God, they have a conscience God gives every human being a conscience, sort of a regulator to say, you know, what you're doing might not be right. And in our conscience, if we're doing something wrong morally, 
it usually bothers us until we may get to the point where over time we said no to our conscience to the point where we seared it, as the Bible says, or cauterized it and it became unfeeling. But that takes time. So God even gives all human beings a conscience. And what he's saying there is sin at its basic level is not that we don't know the law. We don't know right from wrong. It's that we know what's right and wrong. But many times when we sin, we choose to do the wrong anyway. You might say, why is John starting out this passage on on this with this? Because we have to, throughout life, no matter what we're talking about, Understand the magnitude of the situation so that we can apply the proper remedy to it. If we don't see how dangerous something is, if we don't see how how big, how serious, how dangerous something is, then whatever remedy we choose to try to fix it or deal with the symptoms, it's always going to be less than what it needs to be. And the reason why John starts out this passage talking about how great sin is And how much it's involved in every fabric of our life. That even when we know what our conscience is telling us to do, we still do the opposite many times. And even when we know what God is saying in His Word, many times we know what's right and we do the opposite anyway. That's why, look, I'm not anti-education. I love education. I I spend most of my time studying. But I, I hope we all can agree here tonight, education doesn't answer the moral problem of humanity. If education was the answer, if all we needed to do was educate people as to what was right and wrong and what was harmful and not harmful, then the most intelligent people in the world would also be the most moral people in the world. And we know that's not true. In fact, sometimes all that does is make them more intelligent sinners, not more moral people. Many people are educated about things. You know, they know They've been warned. How, how much warning does it take in our society to not drink and drive? And yet, do, does that stop people from drinking and driving? No. Education does not change the heart. See, that's what John is saying. Sin is basically lawlessness. It's basically saying to God, God, I know that this is not what you want me to do, or this is what you want me to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm putting myself up, in a sense, above you, God. I'm telling you, I know what my conscience is saying. I know what, what is right. I know what is wrong. But I want to do this anyway. And John is saying, here's why we need to see how big that is. Because that's the only thing that makes sending a Savior any sense. When the Bible talks about we need a Savior and that Jesus came to be our Savior, if we don't understand the magnitude of sin and the the grip that sin has in our lives and the power that sin has in our lives and how it actually has invaded every fabric of our being, then what would drive us to a Savior? I can deal with this stuff on my own. I don't need help in overcoming my sinful impulses and habits and all of that. I can do this on, I don't need a savior. So that's why John starts out 1 John 3, 4 with, first of all, before he drives us to the savior, before he tells us about the remedy that God has given, the provision that God has given, he first wants to tell us how big the problem is. Hopefully, so all of us will say, you know what? 
you're right. That's bigger than I can handle on my own. I need a savior. I need someone who can redeem me, who can deliver me, who can set me free, who can give me victory. And the one that can do that is Jesus Christ. That's why he says then, following up verse 4, verse 5. And you know, John says, that Jesus was revealed to take away sins, plural, and in him there is no sin. See, John is saying, but God provided. God provided an answer to our huge magnitude of a problem. And that is, you and I can't overcome sin on our own. We can't reform ourselves. In fact, that's the difference between the way man tries to do it and the way God says it has to be done. Man tries to reform themselves. They try to clean themselves up. They try to do it from the outside in. But the message of the Bible is, no, God says the only answer for man is transformation from the inside out. God wants to take our heart, change our heart, and begin to change us from the inside out rather than the outside in. Because you and I can reform ourselves for a while, but it's not eternal. It's not lasting. It's not total. It's something that maybe we can get on top of for a while, but eventually that easily besetting sin, that that, that bad habit, whatever, it's going to come back and it's going to grab a hold of us again. We're going to be handcuffed by it one more time. And that's why John says, here's why we've got to be driven to Jesus. Here's why we've got to, even as Christians, look to Jesus. To stay in fellowship with him so that we can be prepared when he comes. Because the very purpose of Jesus wasn't just to come and die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, John says. No, he came to take away our sins. And when John says that, what he means by that is that Jesus came... To get between us and sin. In a sense, picture sin and, and sometimes, the again, the things that we don't want to do that we do and, and all of that. Picture them as like being handcuffed. And what John is basically saying is Jesus is the one who has the key to unlock the handcuffs of, of the stuff that we really don't want to be doing and that we want to see victory in. He, he can help us overcome our anger and our discouragement and our depression and our anxiety. And he can help us be faithful. All the things that handcuff us, all the things that keep us from enjoying life and God and others and the life that God wants us to have even on this side of heaven, Jesus Christ came. It was his purpose to come between us and that thing or whatever it is and break its power over us. That's what take away sins. It literally means to loose it from around. It's like it's got a hold on us. Even the Old Testament book of Proverbs says it many times that we can be bound by the cords of our own sin. Picture sin even almost like a boa constrictor that, that just keeps wrapping around us and getting tighter and tighter. And the one, John says, that can loose that boa constrictor, that can loose the handcuffs, that can break the power that sin has in our lives is Jesus Christ and only Him. Why? Because John says, in Him is no sin. If I want to go to one who can help me with sin and help me overcome it, it's going to be to the one who there is no sin. I mean, I can go to other human beings, but I better realize that when I go to other human beings to try to have them help me overcome sin, I better recognize, and not that they can't help me, but I better recognize that when I go to another human being, 
they're a sinner too. But when I go to Jesus, when I ultimately am looking to Jesus Christ to be the one to help me, I'm going to the only one in whom there is no sin. He is the one who can give me victory. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.14, Thanks be to God who always gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not a loser, folks. He's a winner. And when you and I are in fellowship with him, and we are locked arm in arm with him, we will begin to see victory in our life rather than defeat. Those things which has kept us down for years and months and weeks to the point where we are discouraged and think there is no way I'll ever be able to overcome this or whatever. We're looking at that. We're looking at us instead of looking at the Savior. We need to be reminded tonight that whatever that is in your life that's holding you back from becoming all that God wants you to be, whatever is impeding your progress with God, whatever is that obstacle in the way, That Jesus Christ came to take that away. He came to remove that obstacle. He came to remove that impediment to your spiritual growth. And you and I need to, by faith, claim the victory tonight that we have in Jesus Christ. Be reminded tonight, Jesus Christ came to take away your sins. To literally come between your sins and my sins. And the reason he uses the word plural there... In verse 5, unlike the singular way of using it as simply how, how it is in its nature, is because obviously, you look around at humanity, sins, the sins of humanity are multitudinous. I mean, they're, they're, as, they're as vast and as varied as humanity is. And, and, and the cool thing is, what John is also saying is, it doesn't matter what I'm struggling with. It doesn't matter what that sin or habit or obstacle, or whatever it is in my life, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, Jesus Christ is able to take it away. Again, I've shared with you my personal testimony of how Jesus Christ took away my years of struggling with anxiety and all of that. He took it away. See, that's what Jesus came to do. Not just to die for our sins so that our sins could be forgiven and we were on our way to heaven, but so that we could enjoy victory over sin throughout our life. Not that we will ever be sinless. Not that we will ever be perfect. But as we're going to see tonight, that God wants His children to not be dominated by sin, but to be dominated by the new nature that God places in us when we become a Christian, dominated by righteous living. That's why he goes on in verse 6 to say, Everyone who resides in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has neither seen him or known him. Listen, John is clearly not saying that Christians are perfect. That, that would contradict not only what John's already said in John chapter 1, but what the Bible teaches. So we've got to, when we study these verses, we've got to come to what other understanding do we get from this other than the fact that when Christians become Christians, they stop sinning because I don't know about you, but I've been a Christian for about 35 years now. I haven't stopped sinning. Hopefully I'm sinning less as time goes on. As I say, I I hope that I'm a little bit more like Jesus Christ today than I was yesterday, this week than last week, this month than last month, this year than last year. We're making progress, but there's nowhere in the Bible where God says, oh, you're going to be perfect before you get to heaven. That's not biblical. But what John is saying is this. That through Jesus, I can get victory over sin. That that whatever my bent or desire is that is not pleasing to God, that is not all that God wants it to be, that Jesus Christ can help me overcome my bents and my desire. In fact, he can even reprogram my default mechanisms in life. 
that if something comes into my life and I'm always choosing self-destructive default mechanisms, I'm choosing things that actually hurt me to cope with life, to cope with pain, to cope with disappointment or whatever it is, that Jesus Christ, when he comes into my life and begins to really rule and reign and I surrender my, he can change those default mechanisms. Like in my life, the Bible says, hey, instead of worrying, Jeff, why don't you pray? And so I I went through a process of, of Jesus changing my default mechanism so that when things come into my life, instead of getting worried about it and anxious about it and all stressed about it, I just start praying. Now, obviously, that process wasn't an overnight process, but it happened. And now, when things come into my life, I don't default to worry. I don't default to anxiety. The first thing I default to is prayer. And that's not because of Jeff Royce. That's because of the reprogramming that Jesus Christ did in my life. That's because of the transformation that Jesus Christ did. And that's what Jesus wants to do in all of our lives. Again, it's not just about salvation being this ticket to heaven and we're on our way to heaven. It's about overcoming the things that hold us down from experiencing life at its highest level here and now. That's why spiritual growth is important. That's why spiritual maturity is important. Bible study is important. All of these things. Because God wants to teach us in these times that Jesus Christ came to take it away. And that that when we are allowing Jesus Christ to change our life, he can change even our desires. He can change our bent. He can change our our, uh, default mechanisms. Whatever we used to go after, that that we know was just blowing up our lives, through Christ he can change that. And that's what he wants to remind us of. And these are the truths that when we begin to put them into practice in our everyday life, they're going to keep us ready and in fellowship with God until Jesus comes. That's why then in verse 7 of 1 John chapter 3, he says, look, we need to not only look at ourselves honestly... 1 John 3, 4. But in 1 John 3, 5, 6, we need to look in faith to Jesus, who is the one who can take away our sins. But then in verse 7, and at the beginning of verse 8, he says we need to look at life discriminately. Because notice he starts off in verse 7 by saying, little children, let no one deceive you. Our lifestyle does matter. And this is the second time in the first couple chapters of First John where he said, I'm writing this to you because there are those out there who are trying to deceive you. So God wants us to know certain things so that we can live discriminately, so that we can begin to see things the way God sees them and, and make the kind of differentiation, if you will, that we need to make. And so notice what John goes on to say. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as Jesus is righteous. Why? Because if I have been born into the family of God, and God is now my father, (coughs) excuse me, spiritually speaking, then just like physically, I'm going to start to reflect some of his character and nature because I'm one of his children. Just like physically, when a child is born and they grow, they begin in some ways to reflect the look and maybe character in some ways of their parents. And the same thing is true spiritually. God is simply saying, if you've been born from above, if you are one of my children, then you're going to be reflecting in your nature 
my nature. But notice verse 8. The one who practices sin is acting like the devil. And the devil has been sinning from the very beginning of the time that he fell. And he said, the lawless one, I want to be like God. I don't want to worship God anymore. I want to take matters into my own hands. I want to do my own thing. I know what's right and wrong, but God, I want to do this. And he rebelled. And ever since then, that's all Satan's been doing is sinning. Because it just, it keeps building in his life and blinding him. So, here's what I want to go back to. Verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8. See, he's saying, let no one deceive you because even today, and even back in John's day, there was the teaching going around that our lifestyle doesn't matter. That a person can claim to be a child of God and live however they want to. And that however they live, you know, that, that in a sense they could separate, they could compartmentalize, if you will, the way they were living, excuse me, from their confession with Christ. John says no. Sorry, but John says no. Our lifestyle reveals our nature. Now again, not that we're perfect, but predominantly speaking, if you look at a person's life who claims to be a Christian, the Bible is simply saying there should be some evidence there that God's nature is somewhere there. Now again, God is not giving us this information so that we can sit in judgment of others. God is giving us this information so that we can look at ourselves and make sure that we are staying in fellowship with God. Let me also illustrate what John is saying by this story. I think you'll be able to relate to this. A pig and a sheep can certainly both land in the same mud hole. But there's a difference because they have a different nature. The pig loves the mud hole. And will want to stay in the mud hole and wallow in the mud hole. The sheep, on the other hand, that fell in the mud hole will want to get out of the mud hole and do everything that they can to avoid from getting back into the mud hole because the sheep has a different nature than the pig. That's what John said. John's saying you can't take a child of God who supposedly has God's nature in them and then look at the way they're living their life just wallowing around in the mud. Loving every minute of it. John says that is incompatible with a child of God. A child of God can be a sheep that falls into the mud hole every once in a while. But the mud hole is not going to attract. The the child of God is going to desire to get out of the mud hole. The child of God is going to go to God and say, God, help me to overcome this in my life. I don't like what I am. I don't like where I'm at. I want to grow. I, I want to become all the... Uh, th- that's what the child of God is going to do. The child of God is not going to want to just wallow around and live in that mud hole. Now, notice then what he goes on to say. Again, God's provision found in Jesus Christ. The end of verse 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. So... Live confidently looking to Jesus. Because Jesus came, purpose of why he came, to destroy the works of the devil. Let's again look at that plural, works. That means the devil is always doing things. But, let's remember something. The devil's not God, so the devil can't be everywhere at once like God can. 
That's why the devil has his minions, the demons, to do his bidding. So that as, as Satan and as the de- demonic world, they're, they're able to do a lot of works all over the world. But they're at work all the time. And, and what they're trying to do even in our lives, even as Christians, is they're trying to get a foothold in our life. They're, they're trying to establish some kind of base of operations. If, if they see that we're giving them some kind of, of uh, room, if we're opening up a door in our lives, then they'll certainly come in. And, and that's why, look, God doesn't want us to be afraid of the devil. God wants us to respect our spiritual enemy. But God wants us to understand that any foothold, any power, any base of operations that Satan has in our life, it's because we allowed him to have it. Not because he just took it. Because Satan can't just come in and take it from a child of God. Because again, Jesus' purpose in coming to earth was to destroy the works of the devil. And, And friends, he wants to destroy the works that the devil's doing in our lives. He, he, he wants to undo what Satan has done. That if Satan has started to work in my life, that Jesus wants to turn that around. He, he wants to, because God wants me to understand that again, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And that, that Jesus Christ can overcome whatever Satan wants to do. He's the ultimate counterpuncher, if you will, that Satan can certainly land a punch, but Jesus is the ultimate counterpuncher. Or if you're playing chess, you know, Satan can make a move, but Jesus is always going to make a move to ultimately defeat Satan, because Satan's already been defeated, as we've seen in 1 John. So again, God wants me to understand this, because if I understand the provision that I have in Jesus Christ, then I know. That, that all these things that somehow seem to get a hold of my life that I can't get a hold of, that what I need to do is instead of sometimes looking to myself or looking to others or trying to figure this out on my own, I just need to look to Jesus Christ because he is the ultimate provision to help overcome everything in my life, again, that's holding me back from experiencing life at its highest level that God intended. Notice another resource that God gives us, verse 9. Everyone who has been fathered by God does not practice sin because God's seed resides in him. And and you'll notice as we go down through this passage that he's not saying that people who've been fathered by God don't sin. He's using the continual practice of sin. That sin dominates their life. That it is habitual. That it is the pig wallowing in the mud. And God says no. Because see, salvation, according to the Bible, brings change. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things will be passing away. All things will become new. It's a process, but there will be a change. There's no such thing in the Bible as someone who claims to be fathered by God, claims to be a child of God, and there's no change in their life. In fact, I've always said to people who try to debate that with me, how can you say that the God of the universe has invaded your life in the person of the Holy Spirit and nothing's changed in your life? How can you say that? There is no verse, there's no passage in the Bible that that teaches that. In fact, the Bible teaches just the opposite. That when God truly gets a hold of my life and my heart, there will be changes coming. Because God wants to transform 
my life. He wants to make me more like Jesus Christ. And one of the resources that God gives, verse 9, is that God's seed resides in him. Now there's much debate as to what God's seed refers to. There are people that think it refers to the divine nature. It's good. Other people think it refers to the Holy Spirit who lives within us. But again, going back to how I interpret the Bible, I always look for other places in the Bible where that term is used and see what is referred there. And there is no other verses in the New Testament that compare the Holy Spirit or the divine nature to seed. But if you keep your finger in 1 John, just go back a little bit to the book of 1 Peter. And look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. So when you're in doubt about what a word means, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Find other verses where that word is used and see what it refers to. And notice in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, notice what Peter says. You have been born anew, not from perishable, but from imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was proclaimed to you. I think the seed there is the word of God that God has implanted into our hearts the moment we became a Christian. Now here's the point going back to 1 John chapter 3 verse 9. What do I have to do? What is my responsibility as a Christian in order to stay in fellowship with God? Besides looking to Jesus to help me overcome, what's some other things that God... Well, he gave me his seed, his word. And like any seed, it needs to be cultivated and cared for. So in other words, that's why even the Bible, even Jesus, when he talked about the parables, compared the word of God to seed that would fall on different kinds of soil. And Jesus was always encouraging those that were hearing him, make sure the soil of your hearts is all plowed up and all of that, so that when the seed of the word of God hits, it penetrates. It gets in there and really does its work. And then in a, in a way, then we water that seed and, and we, you know, allow that seed to, to get out and get some sunshine and whatever. And we can, we can apply that a lot of different ways. I think one way that we cultivate that seed is through Bible study, through studying the Bible on our own, through being part of Bible studies like the mind. That's a way that we can take the seed that God has planted inside of us when we became a child of God, his word, and we can see it grow in our lives to where we are feeding the spiritual nature, if you will, the divine nature that God gave us when we became a Christian and we begin to starve the old nature, the nature that wants to do its own thing, the nature that was dominated by lawlessness. It said, even when my conscience bothered me, I still did what my conscience told me not to do anyway. Even when I knew God wanted me to go this way, I went this way. And when you and I feed, whatever nature we feed the most, that's the nature that's going to dominate our lives. That's why Paul said, if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap spiritual things. Galatians chapter 6. If we sow to the flesh, we'll reap fleshly things. And so we have two natures living within us as Christians. We have our old nature that desires to do its own thing, lawlessness. And we have the new nature that's been implanted 
in us by God, along with the Spirit, along with the Word, that desires to obey God and do what God wants to do. And Christians that learn to feed their new nature, to, in a sense, cultivate what God has given them inside, that's the nature that's going to win. That's the nature that's going to be able to say when the old nature rears its ugly head every once in a while and says, Jeff, do that. That the new nature now is strong enough that the new nature can say, no, no. But see, that's why there's all kinds of different Christians at all kinds of different stages of growth and maturity and fellowship with God. Because there are some Christians that they're feeding their old nature more than they are their new nature, and that's why their lives are out of fellowship with God. That's why we would look at their lives and, and maybe even look at our lives and go, wow, you know, I, I, don't, I don't look like the Christian who's in fellowship with God. And then, verse 10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are revealed. Everyone who does not practice righteousness The one who does not love his fellow Christian is not of God. See, John is a very black and white guy. He doesn't mess around. He he doesn't, he says, I I think John would say to us, we make life and the Christian life much more complicated than what it is. That that, that every everything that we do, every act, every attitude that we have, even as Christians, comes from one of two sources. Either we are being controlled by God. And by the Holy Spirit of God at that point, and we are manifesting the nature of God, or we are being controlled by the devil. And in a sense, we're manifesting more the devil's attitudes and the devil's actions more than we are God's. In fact, that's why even in the Gospels, very interesting, when Jesus kept telling his disciples, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to give up my life, I'm going to die, the Bible says Peter takes Jesus off by himself and begins to rebuke him. Can you imagine rebuking God? God, you don't know what you're doing. You're out of your mind, whatever. And here's what Jesus' response was to Peter. You know it. Get thee behind me, Satan. Now, he wasn't calling Peter Satan. What he was saying was, at that moment, even Peter, Jesus' lead disciple, was more speaking from the devil's perspective than he was God's perspective. That in a sense, at that moment, Satan's mouth was more being used as an instrument of the devil than it was an instrument of God, because Peter was trying to talk Jesus out of going to the cross and had no concept that that's the whole reason Jesus came in the first place. And Peter really wouldn't, if he truly understand the magnitude again of what he was dealing with, would have never talked Jesus out of going to the cross. Because Peter and all the rest of us would have died in our sins if Jesus wouldn't have went to the cross. So see, there are times in our life, even as Christians, there's only two sources of our behavior. Only two sources of our God doesn't say there's 50 different ways out there. He says there's two. And every attitude, every action, every thought, everything that you and I do as human beings, even as Christians, can either be traced back to God and to coming from God and finding its source in God, or ultimately it's finding its source somewhere else. 
And what God is saying is, in this passage tonight, let's learn to understand the resources that we have. Yes, yeah, sin can be an insurmountable problem if Jesus Christ wasn't involved. But now that God has provided Jesus Christ, we have everything and everyone we need to take away our sin, to destroy the works of the devil. That, that whatever the devil is doing, whatever anyone, that Jesus Christ can help us overcome and experience life at its highest level. And then beyond that, God gives us his seed, his word, that he's asking us just to be responsible to cultivate, to just keep that seed growing, keep learning, keep saturating our minds with the word of God so that we continually feed this new nature and starve the old nature. Because if we don't, if we feed the old nature, the old nature is going to wrap around us like that boa constrictor. And even as a Christian... We're going to find ourselves held in the cords of our own sin and making. And we're going to be trapped. And we're going to be like that person who's held in handcuffs. And Jesus never meant any of his children to live in handcuffs. Again, Jesus said, I came so that you might be free. God doesn't want any of his children to be in bondage and slavery to anything other than God. Jesus came to set us free. And Jesus says, if you and I know the truth, the truth will set us free. And if we've got the Son of Jesus, or the Son of God, Jesus, in our lives, we can truly be free indeed. Folks, I hope you're experiencing the freedom of God. But I also stand before you as one who throughout my 35 years as a Christian, I didn't always experience the freedom of God because of my own choices. Because I let the devil get a foothold in my life. I allowed him the power in my life. Or I allowed someone else the power in my life. And it was when I began to learn it didn't have to be that way. That Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to take away my sin. That my life began to look differently. But at any point, Jeff Royce, just like any of us, could begin to feed that old nature again and start being enslaved to those things that kept me down for so long. And that's why God encourages all of us, keep on going forward, Jeff, in your walk with me. Keep on looking to Jesus every day. Keep on realizing what you have in Jesus Christ and who you have in Jesus Christ. And keep cultivating the seed of God's Word in your life. Keep allowing it to grow so that you'll have the strength spiritually to say no to the old nature when it tries to arouse us to go back to the old life, to the things that we hopefully have left behind, to that mud pit that we don't want to go back to that mud pit and wallow in it anymore. If Jesus Christ has set you free, then stay free, my friends. Stay free. Keep reading, keep studying, keep growing. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you for your word tonight. God, I just pray that you would just, God, just entrench these truths in our hearts and minds this next week. God, just give us encouragement. Don't allow what's got a hold of us, how long it's had a hold of us, to discourage us. But finally, God, help us in faith to look to Jesus into his glorious, 
shining face and help us to see there that we have all the strength, all the help, all the power that we need to overcome anyone and anything in our lives that's keeping us from enjoying life to its fullest. The abundant life that Jesus Christ came to give. The freedom that Jesus Christ came to give to us. God, help us to do that this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.